0: Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the show that brings you all the top news in science. I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan, New Scientist Features Editor.
2: And I'm Rowan Hooper, Podcast Editor. Welcome to the show. This week we're also joined by, well, lots of other New Scientist staff. We've got Features Editor Kat Lange and reporters Karina Shah and Matt Sparks. Welcome all.
0: Hello. Hello Hi. Coming up on the show today, we're going to learn about how to increase your self-awareness. We're going to hear about ethnic diversity in Tudor, England. And we're going to discuss the problems with Bitcoin mining.
2: Yeah, the horrendous environmental problems of Bitcoin, uh, which is the last thing we need at the moment. We've also got a unique new species of ant, which is always nice. We don't have enough ants on the show.
0: Yeah, I can't remember any ants on the show. It's about time. Um, Before we get into all of that, though, uh, we have a great New Scientist subscription offer going on at the moment we want to tell you about. Get your first 12-week subscription for half price, plus you also get a free New Scientist Moon jigsaw puzzle, normally worth Mm $21.99. To get that, go to newscientist.com slash puzzle to subscribe and get your free jigsaw. now, this week, we saw the publication of a big paper with 84 different authors analyzing lots of models showing that the amount of sea level rise could be halved if the world meets the Paris Agreement's toughest goal of holding global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Rowan asked the lead scientist of that paper, Tamsin Edwards of King's College London, what they'd done and what they'd found. So we compared...
3: The kind of rough current trajectory of our policies and pledges that we're putting forward under the Paris Agreement, which would lead to, uh, certainly for the, for the scenario we're looking at, a bit more than three degrees of warming. And then we compared that with a one and a half degree warming scenario, which would be, you know, really well consistent with the Paris Agreement. And we found that the difference between those was a halving of the sea level contribution from the world's land ice. So for example, we would halve the losses from the glaciers, and we would reduce the losses from Greenland by about 70%.
2: Didn't we already know that, you know, that's why we had to keep it to 1.5 of warming, that we can save ourselves so much uh, of this sea level rise?
3: Yeah, I mean, I agree. As a climate scientist, it's sort of groundhog day, right? You know, <laughs> sea level's gonna go up, but if we limit our our emissions, it's not gonna go up as much. You know, I, I agree. But yeah. I think for me, one of the one of the real strengths of this study is that we we're much more confident of the specifics of the answers than ever before. So a lot of the previous studies have been perhaps just using one computer model for Greenland or using a sort of quite a lot of expert judgment to kind of fill in the gaps where the models couldn't incorporate a particular process of ice loss. Whereas here we've got, you know, sort of 10 to 15 models for each of those different, you know, ice sheets and glacier regions. We've got, not only that, but within each model, we've got multiple settings. We have, you know, in in every computer model, you've got input numbers that you're not completely certain what those input numbers should be. So we did a lot of exploration of trying out different plausible settings as well. Now we have a much clearer idea of the uncertainties, the probabilities of different sea level rise, what happens if we use different models, uh, and the range of predictions.
2: Can you talk a bit about what we know about what ice melt is already locked in? Because sometimes we hear this phrase that a certain amount of of ice melt is locked in, a certain amount of sea level rise is locked in. Um, How does the work you've done relate to that, if, if at all?
3: All of our numbers showed the sea level contribution from all the world's land ice is going to go up So all of them showed, basically, as you say, that even under the lowest scenario, the one and a half degree warming, even at the lowest end of our uncertainty intervals of our error bars, if you like, we still get a sea level rise. We still get melting of ice. And that's due to different factors. Some of it is just that if we have just even a small amount more warming, things like the mountain glaciers are very sensitive to that. You know, there've been studies that if you just froze global warming right now, we'd we'd lose, I can't remember the numbers exactly, 20, 30, 40% of the world's glacier sort of volume. And then part of it is that the oceans have a kind of a long t- uh, response to, to warming. So if the oceans keep on warming, which we know that they will, then that will continue to have that knock-on effect on the ice sheets. And then the ice sheets themselves are very slow to respond. They're actually still responding to ice age cycles of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years, um, adjusting to the climate. So all of those together, the sort of short, medium and the long term kind of lag and sort of delayed response means that we're going to get sea level rise for centuries to come. And unfortunately, there's basically nothing we can do about there being some sea level rise, all we can do is try to, to limit it.
2: But in a way, there's a, a sort of glimmer of hope here, isn't there? Because we used to think about a tipping point, and we used to think of it as a, a quite a sort of cliff edge that you'd walk off and you've gone over the tipping point. But now there's an idea of tipping points being uh, this broader period of time like you're talking about. So does that mean we've got a bit more time potentially not to draw back from a potential tipping points?
3: That phrase tipping point has so taken the popular imagination, understandably, because it it sounds terrifying, you know, this cliff edge, whether it's in warming or sea level rise. And I think over the last 10 years, climate scientists have got a lot better at really looking at the details and more sophisticated models to try and unpack that. So I think there are some parts of climate change where we don't think of it so much as being a tipping point, but there are some that we do. And one example of a tipping point would be Antarctica, actually because the West Antarctic ice sheet is mostly sat on bedrock below sea level. And the way that the ice sheet sort of sits on the bedrock and the way that ice flows leads to one or possibly two ways in which it could be unstable in the future. And that would be a sort of tipping point where even if we reduced our global temperatures back to pre-industrial, the ice sheet would just keep on losing ice in West Antarctica. And that would be potentially if we triggered the full collapse. Something like three meters or more of sea level rise. But there are other areas like um, the sea ice in the Arctic, which I think 10, 15 years ago, we used to talk about as being a tipping point. Now we think of that as being more like, um, I don't know, like a dial that you, you dial up and down or something. So as the warming goes up, the Arctic sea ice will, of course, disappear, but it's not a tipping point. As we hopefully reduce temperatures again in the future, that sea ice can recover. You know, I I think for West Antarctica, I think we can save it if we keep emissions really low, if we meet the Paris Agreement. I think models and studies are really consistent that we can we can prevent that tipping point from occurring. Uh, but if we go for the you know full sort of trajectory of emissions, just um, like a business as usual or high emissions, then it really would play out over the next few centuries.
2: So you've looked at these two scenarios: the business as usual, or a high emissions, uh, three degrees of warming, and a and a Paris Agreement, one point five degrees. You know, if we don't, uh, obviously, we really want to cut emissions, and we really have to. But if we carry on like we are, are there other options to save the ice? People might start looking around.
3: I actually have a PhD student who's just starting to look at the idea of uh, geoengineering. To save the Antarctic ice sheet, uh, more at the global perspective. You know, do we reduce the CO two in the atmosphere to try and get the temperatures back down? Some of the more um, you know radical ideas that have been talked about is putting particles into the atmosphere to reflect the sun to cool the planet down. But some people have talked about more like ice sheet specific geoengineering. So they've talked about maybe even blowing ocean water back onto the Antarctic ice sheet to create the sort of snowfall conditions to build up the ice sheet again with giant fans. Now that would take a lot of energy. So, you know, there are no simple answers people have talked about. Could we try to prevent the ocean touching the ice by putting up barriers. People have talked about trying to increase the reflectivity of the surface of the earth with, I don't know, foil sort of shiny surfaces or, you know, trying to sort of put some material on sea ice to make it really bright instead of darker to save the sea ice. I, I think all of these are really worth looking at for, for, you know, it's always important to understand the world and for, you know, for science to sort of look at these blue sky ideas. I don't think anyone's very seriously thinking about these ice sheet scale geoengineering ideas, but I think it's, um, I don't know, that, that idea that we we try and invent all these crazy techno fixes and like amazing sort of ingenuity and engineering, but we could just decarbonize our energy <laughs> systems, which is not easy, but it's like that sort of idea of, well, we, we can't ultimately get around this problem because even if you save the ice sheets through tinfoil, <laughs> You know, you've know, still got global warming causing more heat waves and uh, changes in rainfall around the world. So you then have to come up with different fixes for that. So it's kind of a lot of band-aids to the problem. What
2: do you want people to take away from this, policymakers makers and, and normal people?
3: I think there's two things. One is that sea levels are going to go up, no matter what, but also that we do have some control over that. We can sort of limit the damage. But there is still enough uncertainty that we've got to be ready to adapt to different levels of sea level change, of sea level rise, depending on what Antarctica does. And we're going to see how that plays out over the next few decades.
2: Thanks, Tamsin. That was Tamsin Edwards of King's College, London. We've also got a piece in the mag this week by Gemma Wadham, who spent two weeks living under a glacier in Norway. And we'll put a link in the show notes.
0: And now it's time for Lifeform of the Week, where we celebrate some organism that's in the news. Matt, what have you got?
4: So this is a newly discovered ant, uh, species of ant from Ecuador, which has been named with the suffix they, rather than the traditional gendered Latin suffix, to celebrate gender diversity.
0: So normally in Latin, the names of different species come with a male or female suffix, right?
4: Yeah, so usually species are named uh, to recognise one of two distinct genders, with the suffixes A for females, or I for males. Uh, This ant has been named Strumogenes Ayers They. Ayers after an artist and human rights activist, Jeremy Ayers, and they to represent gender diversity.
0: Ah, okay. So tell us about Ayers then, Jeremy Ayers.
4: So Ayers was a protégé of Andy Warhol in the 1970s under the pseudonym Silver Thin. He died in 2016. And Douglas Boer, the biologist who named the ant, told us that uh, he identified as a gay man outside of his Warhol character, but I'm naming it after him with a suffix added to include all non-binary people for his activism.
2: And tell us about the ant itself.
4: So according to Burr, there are 853 species in the uh, Strumogenes genus, but this new ant was immediately identifiable as unique. Uh, he said it was very different from any ant in the genus. Uh, there's a lot of convergent evolution, so a lot of species in different countries look alike but aren't related. Uh, so it was a special ant, he says. And I was waiting for this for something like this to represent gender diversity and biological diversity.
2: Now a break for a quick message from Jim Al-Khalili. Hi, I'm Jim Al-Khalili, interrupting your podcast to tell you about What I Believe, a podcast by Humanist UK, exploring the values, convictions and opinions of humanists in the public eye. Each week you'll get to listen to scientists like Richard Dawkins, Helen Chersky, Alice Roberts and me discussing our approaches to life. New episodes go live each Thursday and are available on all the usual places you get your podcasts. Curious? Subscribe and listen to the What I Believe podcast
0: today. And here's a few words from our sponsor, Tiny Forest.
5: Environmental challenges such as flooding, biodiversity loss and heat stress are becoming increasingly prevalent in our cities. A tiny solution has the power to explore these challenges and help transform our urban areas. It's called Tiny Forest. Find out why these tiny forests have the potential to be super powerful on the Earthwatch Europe website, earthwatch.org.uk/newscientist. A tiny forest is a nature-based solution—a wild green space packed into an area the size of a tennis court. Although tiny, they bring all the benefits of a forest: connecting people with nature, helping to mitigate the impacts of climate change, and providing a home for wildlife. A diverse mix of native trees is planted densely, encouraging rapid growth. In the UK, Earthwatch is pioneering tiny forests. We engage local communities in the planting and looking after of the forest so that we can assess the benefits tiny forests can bring to our cities and communities. Go to earthwatch.org.uk forward slash to find out how you can help Earthwatch Europe to transform our cities.
0: Next up, we're discussing metacognition. How self-aware are you feeling right now, Rowan?
2: I'm feeling intensely self-aware because I'm responding in a pre-planned fashion to a question I knew was coming but to get to your point what is uh, is that what Oh god! sorry I'm too self-aware to be able to concentrate <laughs> to get to your point is that what metacognition is is it intense self-awareness
0: Yes, it's awareness of our own minds, uh, the ability to think about our own thinking. And Kat, you've edited the cover feature of the magazine this week, all about this. So, what's new?
1: Yeah, so it's quite a, a mind-bending concept. But we used to think that you couldn't study self-awareness. Um, it was, you know, too meta. It was a, an overall process in the brain that you, you know you wouldn't be able to see it in a distinct area, and it's completely subjective. How can you really know? what you think you know. Uh, but now scientists can test it in the lab and they can even see it in the brain using brain scanners. So what exactly do they do in the brain scanner? So they they basically make make people do all sorts of tests and they watch which parts of the brain uh, crackle into life. And they found that there are basically self-awareness algorithms in the brain, which they found, which is pretty cool. And if you can remember being in a pub quiz, Uh remember remember the pub?
0: (laughs) Back when we used to (laughs) see people in
1: person. (laughs) Yeah. Uh and there's always someone in the team who's super confident that they're right about the answer, whether or not they're right. And uh, you know, other people are more circumspect. I'm one of those annoying people who's like, Oh, I think I know this, but I'm not sure if I know it, but I think (laughs) it's this. Uh so they're they're sort of more cautious. And so this understanding of your level of confidence is a good measure of your self-awareness. And that's the kind of thing that they can measure in a scanner.
2: So Kat, you just said you were more cautious about answering questions. Does that mean you're more uh, self-aware?
1: So it's not necessarily about how confident you actually are, but it's about being more confident when you're right and less confident when you don't actually know. There is a difference there. And that is what scientists call your metacognitive sensitivity. And that's what's really important.
2: Thanks, Kat. And to find out how you can train your self-awareness from neuroscientist Stephen Fleming, how you can boost your metacognitive state, check out the piece in this week's MAG and online, and we'll put a link in the show notes.
0: Now it's time for the Total Perspective Vortex, where we look at something that really changes our perspective. And this week, it's archaeology again, but with genetics. Karina, what have you got?
6: Yes, so this is about the Mary Rose, Henry VIII's
0: warship. So that's famous because it sank full of stuff, didn't it, and and was really well preserved. So when it was brought to the surface again, it has been an absolute treasure trove for historians.
6: Exactly. It was full of artefacts, weapons, supplies and stuff from Tudor time. It was a time capsule of the period, essentially. But what's been less well known is that lots of the crew were also preserved, and now eight of the crew members have been analysed with something called multi-isotope analysis where they analyse the isotopes present in their teeth. The unique isotope signature serves as a snapshot of the childhood diets of the individuals and using these they were able to estimate where they all grew up. And so what's fascinating is that three of the crew seem to have originated from warmer more southerly climates than Britain, perhaps from the southern European coast, Iberia or even North Africa and one of the members had a skull with characteristics typical of someone with african ancestry
2: it's amazing isn't it as an insight into the diversity of british society like 500 years ago now, i was at hampton court the other day and i saw they had a, some pictures of a man called john blank and he was a trumpeter in the court of henry the 7th and henry the 8th um, and he was the only black tudor that we have an image of And he seems to have been given a position at court because of his skill with the trumpet. And, you know, he went through two kings. But this Mary Rose analysis seems to be the first evidence of a black mariner in Tudor history. Is that right?
6: Yeah, it's the first direct evidence of a black mariner in Henry VIII's Navy, yes. But there are multiple historical texts that refer to a multinational crew, especially during the Elizabethan era as well. Um, But this is the first evidence directly from the skeletal remains. There were big networks of trade throughout Europe and beyond. So with this movement of goods, there was likely to be the movement of people too. So how many people were on the ship? Um, since it was discovered in 1982, they discovered uh, partial skeletons for at least 179 men. But there are estimates of a, up to a 500. So there could have been many more people of different nationalities and ethnicities. So where are
0: all these skeletons kept you know have they been buried do we know any of their names is there enough dna preserved to extract sorry i know i'm asking a lot of
6: questions (laughs) so they're currently displayed at the mary rose museum in portsmouth and although we don't know their names we do know their professions according to the belongings they were found with and there has been some dna analysis done on the remains but not all because of course it's difficult to find dna
2: Okay, let's talk about Bitcoin, everyone.
6: Yay! Oh,
2: <laughs> uh, I saw someone on Twitter saying they still don't get Bitcoin. And someone replied and said, imagine if you kept your car idling 24-7 and it produced solved Sudoku's, you could trade for heroin. Is that about, is that about right, Matt?
4: I think it's it's probably a little unfair. Uh, it's a It's a really exciting technology with a lot of benefits, but admittedly also a lot of very big problems as well. So the best way to think of it is like PayPal or a bank, but entirely without central control. Um, so without a central authority, it needs a way of tracking who has what. Uh, and it does that by decentralizing itself across thousands of computers all around the world, just like the peer-to-peer file sharing tools that we, we all knew in the early 2000s. And the way it prevents tampering is by creating a huge archive of all the transactions that have ever taken place uh, and encoding it mathematically so they can't be altered. That process of of baking that archive into a blockchain is what we call mining. And the miners get rewarded with new Bitcoins for providing that service.
2: So when we say mining, we mean solving some mathematical problem that unlocks a block of Bitcoin. Uh, and I got myself into a rabbit hole here, but just remind me or explain to me why someone has to spend energy to mine this thing. Well, why is it worth something in currency terms? Or is it just that we agree it's worth something, like we agree, you know, 50p is worth a pint of milk?
4: So I think all, all money is a little bit abstract. So a, a pound or a dollar or a euro only has value because we have faith that it has value. So you can see that system completely fall down when there's a run on a bank or when there's hyperinflation in a country these currencies, they used to correlate to a lump of precious metal in a vault somewhere, but that's not been the case for decades. So in that way, Bitcoin being abstract isn't really that much of a leap.
2: And while we're on the basics of it, uh, we talk about having to solve some crypto problem to unlock the Bitcoin. But um, how how are these problems set? Uh, and, And they're worthless in themselves, right? The solutions to the problems aren't worth anything to us.
4: So the the problems themselves, are they're hardwired into the open source software that powers Bitcoin. Um, and the, the problems essentially boil down to converting this archive of transactions into a smaller piece of code using a process that's incredibly hard to do computationally in one direction, but very easy to check afterwards. So the miners are essentially proving that they've done a lump of mathematics that's very hard. But also useless, except for the fact that it allows Bitcoin to operate.
2: We all know it's been around for ages. And like uh, ten years ago, we sent a reporter from our Boston office to New York um, and made him only spend Bitcoin. Um, but since then, I wonder like how much it would be worth that we, you know, he, that he used. He changed one hundred and fifty dollars into Bitcoin. Then it must be worth a fortune now.
4: Yeah, the, the value of Bitcoin has soared since it, it first went online. In the in the really early days, a Bitcoin was worth pennies, and now it's hovering around forty thousand pounds per Bitcoin. And there's no better example of this in action than when a big Bitcoin advocate tried to prove that the whole system could be a useful currency back in two thousand and ten by buying two pizzas with it for ten thousand bitcoins. So in in today's prices, each one of those two pizzas cost him two hundred million pounds. Now some of that rise will be because people see a real utility in it. Um, and a lot of it is probably just people jumping in to make a quick buck.
2: And now it's not just Bitcoin, but there's loads of other cryptocurrencies, aren't there? And the the maddest one is Dogecoin, which is literally started off as a joke. And Elon Musk has been tweeting about it. And now it's worth billions. And it used to be that the big issue was around how cryptocurrency was going to you know, disrupt regular currency. But now... There's proper worries about the environmental impact of mining this stuff, isn't it? The energy it takes to mine it.
4: Yeah, it's, it's definitely a problem. And, and it's all down to the mining side of things, really. So the, the difficulty of the puzzles that miners have to solve is quite elegant, really. It's automatically adjusted depending on the amount of computing power that's being used globally to mine coins. So in the early days, you could just magic them into existence at the click of a button on, on even a really modest computer. Uh, but now there's there's vast warehouses full of specialist hardware churning away constantly just for a fraction of those rewards.
2: Yeah, and some some of them have dedicated power stations just for them just to mine Bitcoin. And we had a piece recently showing that the carbon emissions associated with mining Bitcoin in China will soon outstrip the total annual emissions of Sweden. And uh, by 2024, Bitcoin mining will release about 130 million tons of carbon. That's more than the annual emissions of Italy and the Czech Republic, and it's crazy and it just can't go
4: on, can it? Not, no, not indefinitely. <laughs> I mean, as As the price rises, it becomes more feasible to spend more money on mining, and because it automatically adjusts the difficulty... That seems like a one-way problem, um, and the problem grows worse and worse. As you say, the University of Cambridge studies it really closely at the moment and uh, publishes estimates on the electricity spent uh, on on mining Bitcoin. In 2016, it was uh, around four terawatt hours a year, and at the moment, it could already be as high as 141. So it's it's already past. Crazy. Now.
2: So, look, how are we going to sort this out? You know how this is not a question I really expect you to answer. <laughs> how is China going to get its emissions down with all this mining going on, and not just China, but in the US where there's a ton of mining going on?
4: Yeah, there's a there's a lot of of mining going on around the world. A, lo- a lot of it is going on in in China at the moment, and there is an argument that some of it is based around the sources of cheap power, like hydroelectric dams, which some people say have excess power that the grid can't handle, so it's it kind of neutralized itself that way, but no, I don't believe that no it's it's a I think it's a tenuous claim. Um, yeah. there's also efforts from some miners to use renewable power, which which is great, but it's certainly not a complete solution and Bitcoin is now using over half a percent of, of the world's electricity supply. so clearly uh, it's not all going to be renewable power at this point. and in any case, even if it were, that electricity could be used on something more useful. Um, so there are people advocating for a fundamental change in the way mining works to remove that useless computation element of it, or just to replace it with something useful like analyzing scientific data. But um, while a lot of other cryptocurrencies are kind of exploring this stuff, it does feel like the genie is out of the bottle with Bitcoin now because there's there's just no incentive for miners to call for a change um, because they're making such huge profits
0: this week thanks to our guests kat delange matt sparks and karina shah and thanks to you all for listening
2: yeah thanks everyone and do remember to get that free jigsaw puzzle with the subscription offer at newscientist.com slash puzzle thank you see you next week bye
1: bye 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 bye, bye.
2: This podcast is produced by Oli Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.
1: Hi. Oh, that sounds weird. <laughs> Can someone just say hello to me, please? I'm so self-aware of my heart, my hello.